Welcome to Elite Team Athletics Podcast. I got my guys Tevin and Q in here with me. I'm your host, Kyle Cognitori, and we have the pleasure of having former Minnesota Viking head coach and player Mike Tice with us today. How's it going, coach? It's going well, my friends. Good afternoon. Hope you're keeping your head down and staying at home and staying safe. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. You know, I know it's not Thursday today, but I got a little throwback for you. Uh-oh. What do you think of this? Oh, hey. that. Man, I had hair. <laughs> yeah, that's cool. That's really cool. The commish. That's when I named you the commish, didn't I? Yes, you did. You and John you were, like were always... Uh, you were like the commissioner of the camp, man. <laughs> That was everybody makes fun of me for the photo. I said that's probably right after you guys gave me some nuggies right before the <laughs> Well, you know what? You were a bright young man and you uh, had a lot of questions about why we were doing things the way we were doing them and that's a good thing. That's not a bad thing. Well, good. I'm glad you didn't you didn't dislike me for that. I mean, you took me under your wing and you know I had a lot of really cool experiences. I met Tevin at that camp. Um you know, you lied to everybody and told everybody I was your nephew, so the players automatically loved me. I remember a lot of guys, you know, um, taking me into their cars to show me the cool, I, I believe Mike Bennett had just bought Shaq's Hummer at the time, so he wanted to show me all the bells and whistles in that. And uh, I, I just did a lot of really cool things. Dante Culpepper, Nate Burleson used to buy us cleats and gloves and, and check in on us throughout the season in high school all the way through growing up. So it was just like an unbelievable experience. And I appreciate you for doing that for me. Oh, absolutely. You know, I think it's important that uh, if you end up being successful, since I've been, been very blessed to be somewhat successful, you want to make sure you share that with uh, people along the way. And you want to, I've always felt like when you're, when you're dealing with youth, uh, Diane and I have a foundation, we deal with raising money for a lot of different youth programs. When you're dealing with youth, you want to treat all the kids that you come across as if they were your own. You know, you want to treat them exactly how you would treat your kids. And I think parents that I've run across and, you know, I coach Little League Baseball, Little League Basketball, Little League Football, parents that I've run across over the years are always very appreciative that I treated their uh, children as if it was my own son, Nate, or my own daughter, Adrian. You definitely did. You definitely did. I remember you telling me and my brother, if we ever come down to training camp to find you, and I didn't know what you wanted me to find you for, but we found you and you ended up giving us a, a like a ticket or, or a pass, got us on the field. We were catching passes from Dante and receiving kicks and punts and, and getting picked on by Randy. And, and, and <laughs> we met Priest Holmes and Dante Hall from the Chiefs that day because you guys were scrimmaging them. I think uh, Brock Lesnar got in a fight with one of the teammate or one of the guys on the other team. No, no, that's no. A, your your memory is wrong. He did not get in a fight. He got in about a half a dozen fights. <laughs> 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 and I'll never, I dropped my water. I'll never forget the general manager Carl Peterson. He had a broken leg. He was in a car. He came over to me and said, "We will never ever practice against you again." <laughs> Because of Brock Lesnar beating up their team. Oh, gosh. <laughs> well, that was better because it wasn't he in a fight with, like, Wiggins the week before that with Jermaine? Oh, God. Brock wanted to fight every day, man. That's why he's a great – that's why he's a great performer that he is in the in the WW whatever it is now, CFD, <laughs> WW something. I know they don't have XFL anymore. That's too bad. Yeah, sad about that. I like the XFL. Yeah, maybe maybe down the road, if the pandemic's not still bothering everybody, they'll they'll try to bring it back. 
Well, I think the good news from what I heard is that uh, I thought they were carving a good niche. Uh, one of my friends and team, former teammates, Jim Zorn, was the head coach of the uh, Seattle franchise, the Dragons. You know, I think they were carving out a good niche. It sounds like they kept the offices intact, which is a good thing. If they shut down the offices, then obviously that would be a bad thing. But I hope they kick it back up again because there certainly is a need for a spring league to – chance to develop more players. We don't have a minor league system in the National Football League. Be a chance to develop some younger players and a chance for players to play and actually play in games. And that's the only way you get good or get better is to actually play and perform in, in football games. I think that'd be phenomenal. Well, do you want to rewind it and go back in time, some of your high school days? Uh, I'll go back in time. I, some things I might not remember. You know, I'm getting old. I'm 61. Uh, been hitting the head a few times, uh, some of it not by choice, some of it by choice. <laughs> but uh, I, I'll, uh, yeah, I'll do the best I can, but go ahead and fire away. Whatever you guys want to talk about, it's all open open fire. And uh, Well, you're, you're a Long Island kid, Long Island kid. You were, you were known for 6'8 quarterback. They would never been seen before back then. So you're highly touted, highly recruited, right? Yeah, I was uh, very fortunate to uh, play for a great high school head coach, George O'Leary, who was uh, just retired a few years ago from Central Florida. Uh, had him on our staff with Minnesota, uh, was uh, off defensive coordinator for a year or two. A great mentor, uh, was very, very tough, disciplined. I learned to do things the right way, how to study, how to... Uh, work out in the off season correctly, how to take care of yourself, how to get better, how to get quicker. Um, so yeah, I was highly talented. I also played a lot of basketball. My dad wanted me to go to college to play football and, uh, and my mom wanted me to play basketball. So uh, I chose football uh, partly because Coach O'Leary uh, took me on a scouting trip to the University of Maryland. Uh, I had also visited West Virginia, Maryland, Tulane, uh, Boston College uh, turned down. <laughs> I'll tell you a really good story. I got a segue to this really good story. I uh, turned down a chance to visit Penn State when uh, my coach, Coach O'Leary, put me on the phone with Coach Paterno and said, we really want to bring you in and uh, we think you'll make a great college tight end. And, man, I was a quarterback. You know, yeah. <laughs> but I laugh at that because if I'd have listened to him and played four years of college or five years of college at tight end, I might have made a hell of a lot more money in the NFL <laughs> playing tight end. Where it turned out, I played quarterback at Maryland, was not very good. I went eight and three or seven and four, I think, as a starter. And immediately, uh, I got hurt, hurt my shoulder, but immediately after uh, three or four days of training camp, didn't have an off season program back then. Uh, they moved me to tight end. And I said to myself, damn, if I'd have just had four or five more years of this in training in college, I might, I might be something. It turned out I was mostly a backup tight end for 14 years, caught a few balls, did a lot of blocking, um, but uh, was very blessed to have a long career. A very long career. You know, before we get into all that, I want to go back through some of the college stuff, though. Was it tough uh -oh. for you going from being, you know, highly touted in high school with George O'Leary to then going to college and kind of having to sit for a little bit before you got your chance? Well, um, 
my freshman year, uh, I wasn't redshirted. My sophomore year, I actually played in some games. Uh, we had a good team. We had a good veteran team. I got a chance to play in some games. So that was nice. Uh, going into my junior year, I got hurt the last play. I was scheduled to play in the third quarter in the spring game. Uh, tore my, a my AC joint, had a screw put in my shoulder, and was told I'd you know, never really be able to throw or play quarterback again. I wanted to prove them wrong. I rehabbed. I did not get redshirted, although my dad implored Coach Claiborne to redshirt me and let me heal. I actually started uh, the opening game my junior year against, I think it was Villanova and Howie Long. Um, but, uh, you know, sitting on a bench is part of it in college, uh, unless you're a, a stud running back or a tremendously gifted wide receiver uh, or, or an athletic quarterback. You know, I was just yeah. an okay athlete, big, tall, gangly. But if you're one of those type players, you're going to sit on the bench. And so, you know, I sat. And that was part of it. And uh, when I played, I enjoyed it. I wish I had more skills. Uh, but I was very fortunate that my brother John was an outstanding tight end at the University of Maryland as well. And to be quite honest with you, after minicamp, I knew there was no way I was going to play quarterback in the NFL. So I actually trained all summer as a tight end, uh, unbeknownst to the Seahawks. And when I came back for training camp and they moved me to tight end, I guess I fibbed a little bit because I said I've never been in a three-point stance before, but I had been working at it all three months of the summer. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you could see the right – if you're honest with yourself, you could see the writing on the wall that, man, I'm not good enough to play quarterback in the NFL. So, Well, there was one of your quotes in the Washington Post was uh, you said you came back from the injury with the bazooka gun and now you got this cap gun. So yeah, it was hard. Uh, it was hard. Even to this day, you know, my throwing motion is not the same. Um, I, I was in a lot of pain. Uh, I had numbness in my two fingers every time I threw the ball. So think of it. We didn't throw the ball a lot. Uh, so say you threw the ball 14, 17, 18 times a game, and 14, 17, 18 times a game, it hurt when you threw. It, it, it was a little rough, um, to be honest with you. It was a little rough. I can't even imagine. And back then, you know, that's probably it. Things have come such a long way in surgeries now. You know, you Absolutely. look at Drew Brees, and have you had to go back and get that all scoped out now since? No, I just, uh, <laughs> I just live like a lot of NFL players that were in the league for a long time, played for a long time. I just try to manage the pain every day. So I have two bad shoulders. But there are two rotator cuffs that are torn. I'm too lazy and too uh, – uh, I don't feel like rehabbing and being in a sling for a month. So I just try to manage the pain. I hear you. I hear you. A lot of Advil. <laughs> no Advil, man. I stay no away from it. Okay. Okay. Never mind. Never mind. Well, let's... No, pain no pain medication. How the heck do you manage it then? Uh, you try to, you know, get in the hot tub. You try to stretch. You try to do some light dumbbells. You try to keep some uh, some blood flow in there and, and reduce the pain. And, okay. uh, and, and uh, you just, you know, fortunately in Washington State, I can use the ointment. I can use the CBD ointment on my shoulders and on my wrist. Um, and so that helps it's just so you can get a little bit better quality of sleep. No kidding. Um, so then going back into the NFL career, you got switched to the tight end. You, you pulled a little quick one over the Seahawks, let them know you never played tight end, but then you did. 
you end up becoming a pretty good blocking tight end. You stick around for quite a while. You're around a lot of, I mean, cool players. Steve Argent was on your team. Um, I mean, you, you had a bunch of cool coaches as well. Do you want to tell us some of that experiences being there every day? Were you like, wow, man, I'm finally here? Well, you know, I, I just kept my head down and worked. I was a free agent, signed a whopping, I think, $1,500 signing bonus. Um, made 25000 bucks a year, worked during the off-season in a moving company called Beacons uh, Moving or whatever, transportation. Uh, didn't have an off-season program. Didn't get paid like the athletes are getting paid now. Uh, just tried to uh, get better at my craft, get better at blocking, a lot of sled work. Uh, hit a lot of sleds in my day, learning how the one-man sled. Uh, you know, going from quarterback to tight end, having to learn a new uh, technique uh, in blocking took time, a couple of years. And uh, fortunately, I played for some great coaches, uh, the, the two of which, unfortunately, deceased. So actually, all three with the Seahawks. Uh, Jack Patera passed recently. Mike McCormick, the great offensive lineman from the Cleveland Browns and Jim Brown era, passed away. And, of course, last year I lost uh, – uh, my great mentor and Chuck Knox and uh, was able to play for him for quite a while. But you had great coaches. You had great players like Steve Largent, Kenny Easley, Jacob Green, Jeff Bryant, Joe Nash. Uh, you had uh, Brian Blades from the University of Miami, Jim Zorn, Dave Craig. Um, you had uh, uh, Kurt Warner, the running back. Uh, you just had a great amount of tremendous athletes, that came through the hallways uh, in the old Seahawk facility in Kirkland, Washington. And I was fortunate enough to play with uh, a lot of great ones, including Brian Bosworth, who didn't turn out to be a great one, but he was certainly on the forefront of the uh, media. Could you imagine Brian Bosworth today if there was social media? Oh, my god! I goodness. couldn't imagine. You'd be the biggest athlete on the planet. It'd be crazy, wouldn't it? Yeah. Do you, do you think it would be even worse than what it was, though, for him then? Well, I think he would have been an expert at social media. I think he, you know, he took it as far as he could take it without social media. I mean, he had fly-ins where they would, we'd be out at practice and there'd be a, uh, I don't know if he wrote a book or he had something going on and he had a plane charted with a, a banner behind it promoting his book or whatever the heck he was selling at that time. And, and we were all like, you gotta be kidding me. So, uh, <laughs> You know, he got paid all this money. He was the highest paid, I think, Seahawk at the time. Uh, I know it had to bother, you know, Steve Large and all those guys that were great players. But I remember one time we had – we did then eventually have an off-season program. He was late coming out to uh, run one time. And I'll never forget Steve Largent, who's a devout Christian and a tremendous man, uh, great character, yelled out on the top of his voice, come on, Bosworth. Uh, ten, uh, a, a one dollar waiting on ten million. <laughs> he was, he, you know, was all out there in the media that he signed a ten million dollar contract, which was really big money back in the mid eighties. Yeah, and you know, yelled at one uh, a dollar waiting on ten million. We went crazy. He got embarrassed and got a little, you know, snippy. But uh, Steve Largent, uh, you know, great person. And when Steve Largent, you know, he's like E. F. Hutton when he speaks. Everybody listens. Well, I heard the stories of him uh, supposedly making millions of dollars in the t-shirt business, making t-shirts about hating him 
and then selling them at the opposing team stadiums before games. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, that's what I'm saying. The guy was a, a genius. His uh, agent, Gary Wishard, uh, played college ball with uh, my cousins at CW Post College in Long Island, New York. Uh, I think it's in Old Westbury. Uh, and so uh, Gary was uh, quite the businessman and quite the entrepreneur. Genius, genius. That, that's one of my favorite stories. Um, when you bounced around, you went from the Seahawks for 10 years, then you went to the Skins for a year, played for Joe Gibbs, which is another legendary coach. What was that like? Well, you know, we had Plan B free agency. It was the first wave of free agency of something that uh, uh, in 87 we had a strike, in 82 we had a strike. They came up with Plan B free agency. My dad, uh, passed suddenly, well, not suddenly, but my dad passed at an early age, age 53, of, of cancer, a big fight with cancer that he lost. I had a younger sister, Maureen, Mo, who uh, was still at home, my mom. And when I had an opportunity to go back east in the Plan B free agency and play for the Redskins, they were just coming off a Super Bowl win, I thought that would be a good move, not only for me, but for my family had young kids. I had young kids. Diana had young, two young kids, uh, Nate and Adrian. Uh, it, it didn't work out great. I was a little older. Uh, I was, you know, up there in age. I was 30. Coach Gibbs, I was the last player cut the second year. And he said, uh, you know, Mike, uh, we're going to release you. I'm going to keep Kelvin Bryant. Kelvin Bryant was running back from UNC. I said, okay, coach, I appreciate everything. He said, you know, Mike, you just can't run anymore. And I looked at him, I started laughing. I said, you know, coach, when you signed me last year, I, I couldn't run either. So, <laughs> and uh, we have maintained, uh, you know, a conversation over, over, over the years. And uh, what a great coach, what a great man, another man of high character. Uh, it was really exciting to go back there and play and hang out with the Hogs and Russ Grimm and Joe Jacoby. Uh, and all and, and all of that group. It was uh, Donnie Warren and other the other tight end, so Dutch. And so that that was a great time. Uh, I ended up going back to the Seahawks though after that and playing for Chuck Knox again for another year and a half, I think, or whatever the heck it was. And yes, then, it was uh, your two seasons, ninety to ninety two. Right, and then what happened was they sold the team. Um. And uh, Ken Baring brought in Tom Flores, and Tom Flores brought me in and said, I'm going to bring in my own veterans, you know, because you want good veteran presence in the locker room that's going to sing your message as a head coach. And so uh, I retired uh, briefly and then got a call from the Vikings and, and then went to the Vikings. When you retired, that brief stint, were you working at the horse track or something with Anheuser-Busch teamed up or – like, you like know what I, well, you went way back into this stuff. Yeah, I was digging. My goodness. I, uh, I made a, it was one of the foolish mistakes I made in my life, and we've all made some and we've learned from. I started a promotions business and uh, big horse racing fan. Uh, Boeing bought the racetrack to develop, supposedly develop into a testing facility for jets for the 777. It turned out they never built the facility um, or all of the facilities said they were going to buy. The racetrack went away. I was retired from football for a few months, started a promote, actually for a year, started a promotion business and uh, was trying to 
keep the uh, energy up while they were searching, they being the horse racing industry in Washington State, while they were searching for a place to build a new racetrack. And so Anheuser-Busch ended up paying you to do all that, right? Yeah, I was on a personal services contract with Anheuser-Busch to uh, run some charter buses to the racetracks on the other side of the state of Washington and Yakima, also to run uh, buses to the Gorge Amphitheater. Uh, It was steady pay. You know, it was a way to have some income coming in, but it was a lot of work. it, it didn't always work out where you, you know, sold enough. Uh, here we go with tickets, sold enough <laughs> tickets to, to uh, you know, make the thing last. And uh, when I went back to play for the Vikings and came out of retirement, I, I shut it down. Shut well, it down. before we go back into the Vikes, I want to talk about your passion for horses since you brought it up. Your best friend, he was a horse jockey, a pretty good one too, had a thousand wins. He had a pretty bad accident. But then you had bought a, a, a horse, right, for him to ride, which he had won his first race with, or your first race as an owner. Yeah, well, um, Billy and Billy. I grew up across the street from each other. My brother John's actually married to Billy's sister. Billy was born with a, 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 a disorder called dwarfism, uh, not a midget. Uh, you know, he uh, is a dwarf, four foot three. Great athlete, one of the best athletes in our high school. He was a tumbler. He was a gymnast. Um, he wanted to play football his whole life, couldn't play football. So he, when I was at the University of Maryland, he was at Sagamore Farm, which ironically now is owned by the owner of, um, uh, damn, what's that gear? Uh, not you. Uh, shoot, I'm thinking. I'll, I'll think of it in a second. Anyway, University of Maryland grad. Uh So Billy uh, learned how to become a jockey at Sagamore Farm in Maryland. And uh, so I followed his career. He followed my career. When I was blessed to get some playoff money in my pocket, uh, I bought a couple horses in 1985, uh, one of which I talked Billy into coming out and riding, uh, one of which in its first race about three weeks after we buried my dad, Jack, uh, uh, 1987, uh, Billy won on. And uh, we had a big group of people, coaches, Mr. McCormick, Coach McCormick, a lot of pl- a lot of coaches, some players, uh, in a big uh, in the uh, big room upstairs at Long Acres Racetrack, and the horse won. And of course, <laughs> we were all fired up, and uh, then I was addicted, uh, addicted <laughs> to horse racing. That's a cool story. You know, I, I followed that. I, I saw an actual documentary you guys had ran with him. And it was pretty cool hearing him tell his story about how you guys, it, the, the mustard sandwiches with the cheese from his mom that you guys were always <laughs> knocking next door and stuff like that. Yeah, one piece of cheese, Mrs. Clinky, but <laughs> one piece of cheese on the damn sandwich. It's like, but then when you grow up, you realize she was feeding six or eight boys in the neighborhood because we were always hanging over at Billy's house. And, <laughs> and uh, we all got one piece of cheese. Well, you know, Q, do you want to ask him about the T-Bowing story? Yeah, actually, um, I read an article about the horse Tebow, and do you want to give a story about that uh, that race? I don't know. I'm I'm trying to think of what you're talking about. The one where you won all that money. Oh, <laughs> I won all that money. You think you? Yeah. So the in horse. Two, I think it was 2013. Uh, we got uh, let go. Uh, Lovey Smith and the staff got let go in Chicago. I believe it was 2013. 
And uh, I wasn't allowed to interview for a little bit. And by the time I was allowed to interview and uh, Mark Tressman let me go, um, there weren't a lot of the old line jobs dried up. So I sat out a year because they owed me money. So I went back to my house, Seattle, and remodeled it and uh, was sitting there one day. They were outside doing construction. I decided I was going to go online and play a pick six. And uh, it was $108,000, I believe. And I hit the pick six, and uh, T-Bone was one of the horses. I thought his name was T-Bone, but maybe it was T-Bone. And uh, came down to the last race, and I only had one horse. And I was like, why the hell would you only play one horse in the last race? Well, it was because the ticket was only, say, $164 or $184 ticket, which is not a big ticket. It came down, honest to God, you can go back and check, uh, came down to like three or four horse finish. And I knew I had it. I knew I got the head bomb. I went crazy. I started texting everybody I knew that, you know, was into horses and it was on ESPN, excuse me. And uh, I won 108,000 bucks. It was nice. <laughs> So I'm assuming you also are actively watching it as it's going on. Obviously. Oh, hell yeah. Oh, yeah. I had it on TV. I was screaming. I think the the uh, contractor uh, who worked for me was like, we were wondering what the heck was going on inside because, of course, I came out screaming and yelling, handing everybody beers and shit. And it was, uh, excuse my French, but <laughs> no, it, it, was, okay. it was kind of cool. It was uh you know, it was kind of, it was a big win. It was a, it was a nice win. So unfortunately I haven't hit another one that big since. So you do. <laughs> I gave new. it all back. I gave <laughs> it all back. <laughs> well, when you went back after the time, let's go back to, to the playing days. You took the year off. Then you did come back to the, the Vikes actually. And then the Vikes yeah. playing for Denny Green. Yeah, I was doing that promotion thing and, um, you know, it was going okay. And then I got, I got the call, uh, like I said, from, uh, from Denny and, and Brian Billick to uh, come out of retirement. Ironically, uh, I was told I wasn't get our group was told we weren't going to get the license to build a track. And the next week, uh, ironically, I got the call from Denny and, and Brian Billick and I went from one minute I'm in a big, meeting in front of the horse racing commission trying to get a license to build a track for 58 million dollars or 54 million dollars or 55 million, whatever it was in auburn washington and then a week later i'm suiting up number 87 with the vikings so that's you know sometimes it's uh, it's uh, being at the right spot at the right time and sometimes uh it's uh it's good to know some people when one door closes another one opens you know so that well, definitely. So. What was it like playing for Denny and, and Brian before you joined the staff a few years later? Well, Denny was an excellent coach, an excellent offensive coach. Uh, he really understood schemes and angles and zones, and he was a very good teacher. Uh, he put together great staffs over the years, and you can look at all of the guys that came off his staffs and, and were successful. Um, I really appreciate him giving me my start. What happened there was when I came out of retirement, it was really only for the last four games, which gave me 
uh, kind of a cheat year, gave me my 14th year, but also my 14th year pension. And, and so um, the season ended. Tony Dungy was up for a bunch of jobs. You know, he had done such a great job as a defensive coordinator uh, for the Vikings. Uh, another great guy. And Tony, uh, after we played Cincinnati that last game, I was in the back of the bus with Tony, and Tony said, you know, he might have some things going on if I was interested in coaching. And I said, absolutely. You know, and, of course, I'm thinking, all right, be perfect to roll into a tight end position. You only have to coach two, three, four guys. You don't have a big room. So if you're going to be a new coach, that's the best way to start. And then why not start with a position that you actually play? I was 36 years old at the time, so I just retired from playing. Uh, it turned out that I ended up staying uh, uh, with uh, Denny. Went right from playing against Cincinnati to sitting in the tight end room and being a tight end coach the next week or the next two weeks, whatever it was. And so that was my opportunity to get into coaching in the National Football League where I was blessed to coach for 21 years. You know, another big thing, because, again, you've been around so many coaches or so many people that turned into great coaches as head coaches, had great careers. Um, what was it like coaching that 98 season? Well, for me, it was great because I had so many great players in my room. You know, I had three Pro Bowl players uh, starters that year and other really good players in the wings like Matt Burke. And so uh, it was very enjoyable. Um, Randall Cunningham was on fire. Brian Billick was ahead of the curve with, as far as, you know, everyone talks about uh, John Gruden, Mr. Analytics. I, I want to say that the guy that really started the analytics uh, in the NFL or really took it to another level is Brian Billick. And so we had a tremendous amount of great athletes, which made you better coaches, and right. it always does. And yeah. so we had a solid defense. Uh, we created a lot of turnovers on defense, and uh, we had a hell of a year. You know, we lost that one game in Tampa midway through the season, which ruined our perfect season, a regular season anyway. And then we had the unfortunate loss uh, against uh, you know Atlanta. Uh, yeah, we don't, have, we don't have to get into that. That's still that's <laughs> yeah. still that still hurts right here. Yeah, well, me. it hurts me. It hurts me more. <laughs> I can imagine what because uh, that obviously that '98 season that's one of the best teams in Vikings history. When it kind of started with the Randy Moss pick in the draft, were you a part of like the draft room process of picking him, and did you guys realize the athlete and like how great he would eventually become on draft day? Well, Danny Green really always took the lead uh, when it came time to draft. He was a tremendous personnel evaluator. Uh, he kind of hinted to us that, you know, if I want to remember that there was some thought that Dallas would take Randy. And I want to say that Danny came in the room at one point and was kind of alluding to that he might have heard or he heard that and I don't know the exact uh, thing, but that that maybe Dallas was going to pass on him, and if they were going to pass on him, that Randy Moss might become a Viking, and and it, and it came it came to fruition. And Randy loved you know rubbing that in Dallas's face every time he played him. Oh, absolutely. 
I'll never yeah. forget the uh, Thanksgiving Day game where he just took over the game. It was absolutely outstanding. Do you have a, do you have like a Randy Moss experience of like the first time in practice where it was kind of like, oh, this guy's a different different athlete than the rest of the people out on the field? Yeah, well, Randy always had the uh, athletic ability to jump up over defenders and take the ball off of their heads, as he would call it, picking peanuts, uh, picking peanuts off their heads. And he had that that great, you know, hops. He had that great speed. He had that great length. And on top of all of that, he was intelligent. He was a not was he is intelligent and a very very smart football player. Um. When we're getting into that too, when Denny gets fired by Red McCombs, I mean, the whole deal with Red McCombs is kind of something I wanted to talk to you about. Um, and you came in and you took over. That was a huge opportunity. But it was also, did you really know what you were signing up for when you said that to Red? Like, yeah, I want to do this. And knowing that he was going to be a huge penny pincher. Well, you know, uh, I just uh, I was blessed to have the opportunity. It didn't turn out the way you know I had hoped. Uh, we did go, you know, during the regular season, not that last game against Baltimore, which I personally don't count, but the NFL counts. We went 32 and 32 with the lowest coaching staff budget in the league, the smallest coaching staff in the league. We were able to win a playoff game in Green Bay. No other Viking coach can say that. And if you're going to win a playoff game on the road, that's the place you want to win it in Green Bay. Yeah. Uh, we were able to develop a lot of good players. I was able to develop a lot of good relationships uh, with players that still talk to me and still we still talk to this day. We were able to uh, bring up and uh, teach a lot of young coaches, some of which were former players, how to uh, you know become better coaches. We had to do what we had to do. We didn't have the budget. You know, I was combining positions with with coaches where I could have him be a coordinator and coach a position so I could pay him, you know, more of the kind of money that was in the league uh, and keep good coaches. It comes to mind Scott Lanahan was yeah. one. And so, you know, it was – it was good to be able to say that I was a head coach. It's bad to be able to say that I wasn't able to be a head coach with an owner that supported what I was trying to do. Yeah. And I, I mean, that, that's a big one. That was actually the next on my list was Scott. He was a great coordinator and Red just didn't want to pay him. So he ended up going to the Rams. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, you know, I think he, I think the, uh, I think the uh, transition was, I think he went to the Dolphins first to coach with Nick Saban. Okay. And I, I believe that's correct. I could be wrong. Uh, I thought that's where he went first. And then he went to the Rams as the head coach. The, the, the thing that I, I've taken, you know, kind of coming off that Denny Green tree, um, you were really good at putting talent around you as well. Is that something you picked up from him? Not only on your, your roster, but on your coaching staff and things like that. Well, you know, if you if you want to be a leader and you want to be successful, you try, and it's not hard to do with me, you try to hire people that are smarter than you are. So uh, if you can hire people that are smarter than you are and they can problem solve and uh, they can think outside the box, uh, then you got a chance. And so we were able to hire some 
coaches that, you know, Kevin Ross was still in the league. He was a coach that I gave a start and, and helped develop. Uh, you know, Scott Lanahan brought him from the University of Louisville uh, to bring him into the NFL. And he has had a great career. He's back in college now. And, uh, you know, the list can go on and on. Jim Panagos, who yeah. happens to be my brother-in-law, turned out to be one of the best, if not the best, defensive line coaches in college football today. He's now back at Rutgers, was at the University of Minnesota last year. Yeah, um, Jim Jim is an awesome guy. I like Jim a lot. Jim is a great recruiter and a great defensive coach. And uh, so we, we, we were fortunate to have some guys. We also have some guys that didn't make coaching their career. Dean Dalton, who still is in the city, is working on some projects uh, that involve the National Football League and the Hall of Fame. Of course, you know about Pete Bursich. He lives there, and he does radio color for the Vikings and coaches high school football. Another coach that didn't make it a career, Chuck Knox Jr. You know, he got out of football and works for, I believe, IBM in, in uh, L.A. or California. So there are some young coaches that were bright young coaches uh, that probably wouldn't have got a chance to be a coach in the NFL, only was because that they were rookies, they were new at coaching, and I didn't have the money to pay veteran coaches, so I brought some young guys in and taught them you know, what it was like and what they needed to do to be a good coach in the National Football League. Dealing with some of those things, too, I mean, was it hard to, to do those? There's the stories of you carrying out the beer because Red wouldn't pay people to do the catering and stuff and showing up with, with uh, just coolers full of it for fans to come or that were paying for the on-the-field experiences, things like that. What was some of the weird stories that people don't know about that Red kind of put you through? You know, there's no bad memories that uh, I have in my uh, brain uh, that I want to talk about. Uh, you know, I'm 61. I've been blessed to have a, a very good career, not a great career, but a very good career. I've been very blessed to cross paths with many, many good people, uh, many of which are still friends. I have a tremendous amount of friends, uh, of friends that live in Minneapolis that I talk to daily, even as little as 10 minutes ago, I got a text uh, from Minnesota people. Um, I, I really don't want to delve into all of okay. what could have been, what should have been. I, I don't think that's fair to Red. I don't think it's fair to me. I don't think it's fair to the guys I've worked with. I just want to remember the good things. You know, I, I want to remember, you know, the chance to manage people to give people an opportunity uh, to try to put together a winning program, which I thought we did pretty damn good at, based on what we had to work with. Um, do I wish I would have had a second shot? Hell yeah. But, you know, it's hard to get a second shot with some of the things that did occur uh, yeah. as when I was the head coach. And nobody wants to take a chance on a, you know, loudmouth uh, New Yorker. So, you know, you carve your niche in your career, you become a line coach, you try to become the best line coach that you can become, and uh, and that's what I did. You're unreal line coach. You had, uh, what was it, 10 pro bowlers in a five-year span or whatever it was when you were coaching for the Vikes just as an online coach. Then going into coaching your first year, first full year, and the one not the NFL, that the NFL counts, but in uh, 2002 led the league in rushing. Those got to be some pretty proud moments. 
then your final three years, would you go 27 and 22 or 26 and 22? It's a pretty good year. And started off hot, 6-0, and 5-1, and one, then kind of some issues down the back end. Can you tell us what some of that was like for the players? I mean, you're known for being a player's coach. Well, you know, we, we, we had a rough start, you know, like any new coach. Uh, we didn't win early. We we're trying to put the team together, trying to gain talent, trying to, you know, get some talent. We did draft E.J. Henderson, who just got inducted to the College Football Hall of Fame. I saw a little article. We drafted Kevin Williams, and although Kevin Williams doesn't think that he actually was the guy we wanted, the real truth of that story is we were told to trade back to save bonus money because we wanted Kevin Williams. Coach O'Leary wanted Kevin Williams after the senior ball performance that he put on. Coach O'Leary, who was the defense coordinator, wanted Kevin Williams. We felt like we could get Kevin Williams with a later pick, you know, anywhere from 10, 11, or 12. Um, what happened was uh, we were told to uh, trade the pick to save some bonus money if we, in fact, like a pick that was later back. We tried to execute the trade, as, we, as was told by Ozzie Newsom. And it doesn't happen now because everything's fixed now, not fixed, meaning <laughs> crooked fixed, meaning they fixed all the damn problems. But when we were trying to make a trade, Ozzy came out and said, you know, the phone was busy, couldn't execute the trade. So we ran out of time. We, we lost another pick. We did get Kevin Williams, and Kevin Williams was actually the target for us. And um, a great player. Great player. We drafted Nate Burleson. We drafted E.J. Henderson. Uh, we drafted a lot of really good players. Uh, Scott Studwell, Frankie Gilliam, Jerry Reichel did a great job of giving us the best talent that we could. We had a tremendous free agent with uh, when we signed Antoine Winfield and yeah. basically stole him away from the Jets because uh, they had announced he had signed with the Jets. We found out that that was not true. We, uh, I chartered a jet without permission uh, through a friend of mine named Mike Pegram, who's still one of my best friends in the whole world. He chartered a jet. We got Antoine at a Republic airport in Long Island, Farmingdale, flew him to Minnesota with his wife, put him up in a suite, signed Antoine Winfield. A lot of people don't know that story, but that's another story in and by itself. Uh, we were able to do that. I was actually told by ownership that I was going to have to pay for the jet because it wasn't approved. I pleaded my case for why that needed to be paid for in credit to ownership. They did pay for the jet, but we did also get Antoine Winfield. So I was willing to pay <laughs> the 10 grand for the jet. If I had to pay it, I, uh, Rob Brzezinski, who is still with the Vikings, who is still a dear friend of mine. We said, we'll split it. We'll split it. <laughs> But it turned out ownership came around. They saw the good in it. They saw why it was so important to send the jet. We had this deal. We didn't have time to ask permission. We had to make a decision. Rob Brzezinski and I made the decision. We got Antoine Winfield and the rest is history. That's, is, that that's a typical, is that kind of a typical uh, story of how you sign big, kind of bigger name free agents was bring them in on a jet? Do you have a routine for kind of the bigger name guys to kind of impress them while the morning? No, we never, we never brought them in on a jet. I mean, we flew them in. If they were big, we probably flew them in first class. We always wanted to make sure they had their wives with them too. We didn't sign. What we were basically told 
when, when I was the head coach at Vikings, if we had a budget, if we wanted to bring in a free agent for a certain value, there were a lot of times where we were asked, okay, who are you getting rid of at that value? We had to swap out. So okay. that was how we did that business back then. Um, that was the, uh, you know, the cake we had and we had to eat that cake. That's just the way it was. So what were, were some of the meetings? Were you taking them to Manny's? What were you doing? What, can you give us a kind of an idea of what that was since free agency just started a little bit ago? Let people know that you, you're flying them in, but then when you finally got them here, you put them up in a suite. Were you taking them out to dinner? Were you wooing them? Yeah, we, we did the same things everybody did. We, we recruited them. It turns into a recruiting weekend. It turns into a college weekend. We, we were no different. It just came down to the bottom line. I mean, you could say whatever it's a nicer city it was a nicer suite we took them to a better restaurant but come on at the end of the freaking day they all want to get paid and if you can't pay them you don't get them and that's that's mm -hmm. what it comes down to the rest of it's bs you know they, they want to get paid they want money and if they get paid they're going to come if they don't get paid they ain't coming so <laughs> some of the other big things that you did in your coaching career you know, offensively were, was very amazing. A Viking record, 36 games with 300 yards on offense. Um, and, and another one beyond that is we definitely want to dive in a little bit more of that playoff win in Lambeau. Like you said, nobody else can say they did it in the franchise. What was it like? What were you doing? Were you rolling up? Were you throwing the pads back on to get everybody amped in practice that week? What were you doing? No. Uh, I, uh, <laughs> I didn't put the pads back on that week. But we had a tremendous plan. The coaches were able to uh, come up with Lanahan and his staff, a flip-flop of linebackers uh, with the Packers. And when they flip-flopped the linebackers, they were coming with a, a fire zone, blitz, uh, or dog, if you will. We had uh, put into play uh, one word audible uh, that we ended up calling twice. Both went for touchdowns one of which was the fake moon. Uh, we, we, uh, knew, we knew that when they went to this flip-flop linebacker and they were running the fire zone, we knew that that created single coverage for Randy Moss. And we knew that they couldn't cover Randy Moss. So we had a one-word audible, trying to remember what the name of it was. We yelled out the audible. I think there was a hand clap involved, if I'm not correct, but that might have been another audible against Dallas and, uh, and Parcells in opening week or second week of the season. Um, but anyway, we uh, hit that for two touchdowns, and uh, the coaches deserve a lot of credit for a tremendous plan they put together against the Packers in that playoff game. That's an awesome story. I like it. I like it. Do you want to talk about the uh, Randy ratio at all? Well, you know, it, 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 people make fun of it. I know my son is a big supporter of it. Listen, it came down to this. Uh, you got a great player who you've been around and you knew he wasn't happy when he wasn't getting the ball. And you also knew he wasn't happy when he wasn't getting the ball and we weren't scoring and we weren't playing well. If we were playing well, everything's fine. If we weren't playing well and he wasn't getting the ball, it's just the way it goes. You know, you got these playmakers, they want the ball. You don't blame them. They want the ball. So we did a study, and the study came out that when there was a certain amount of passes that went Randy's way, didn't need to catch him, but they need to be targets, uh, the ratio, if you will. 
a certain amount of balls went his way. Uh, it involved a certain amount of wins. I don't remember what those numbers were, but they were substantial. So we decided we were going to have the Randy ratio, and this was really for Lanahan. It was for no one else but something I created for Scott Lanahan. You know, first press conference, announced me as a head coach. I'm trying to come up with something that's going to entice the fan base, and my enticement, whether right or wrong, was uh, the Randy ratio, how many balls he needed to have targeted his way. The problem was then, you know, the – powers that be or the people with the pencils media uh, wanted to track how many balls were thrown his way. And if we didn't win, how come he didn't throw the ball his way? It turned into be a pain in the ass. So I never should have said anything about it, but don't think for one minute that we weren't cognizant of getting the ball towards Randy Moss X amount of times in the game, every single game that he played for us. I promise you that. But you think every team in the NFL is doing that same thing. You know what I mean? No, no, it's just idiots. Damn. You know, you know, it turns into, you know, everybody's got to have something to write about. There's exactly. 900 publications, mm -hmm. there's 7,000 shows out there. Uh, you know, everybody wants to, what if, what if? I hate what if. You know, it's mm -hmm. just, I shouldn't have told anybody. I should have kept myself. I'm a loudmouth New Yorker. Sometimes I, well, not sometimes. A lot of times I lead with my mouth and not my brain. And you know what? So what? You know, that's the way it goes. Uh, and just, you know, didn't I didn't lose any sleep over it, put it that way. <laughs> I believe it. It's not like you're not going to get him the ball. Right. <laughs> it makes perfect sense to get one of the greatest receivers in NFL history the ball as much as possible. I'm guessing you're going to win more games if he gets Well, one. you know, it's uh, Randy always had this thing. He always said, people are hating out there, Coach. You know, people hate. People don't like people to succeed, especially if they're, you know, loudmouths like me, loudmouth New Yorker. People don't want to see guys like me succeed. They want to see guys like me fail. So, you know, whatever. It is what it is. Uh, I believe in what I believe in because I've had great mentors and great teachers, you know, starting with Jerry Claiborne, George O'Leary, Chuck Knox, Mike McCormick, uh, Jack Patera gave me my first shot. He's the one that kept me with the, with the Seahawks. Uh, been around a lot of tremendous uh, position coaches, Bill Musgrave, Jack Del Rio, another great head coach that I've been able to work for, Lovey Smith, great defensive mind. Uh, I've been around a lot of great coaches, and you try to learn from all of those coaches. Uh, and there, Rod Marinelli, another coach that comes to mind, great defensive line coach, just went to the uh, Las Vegas Raiders from the Cowboys. And you learn a lot from being around good coaches and good people. Do you want to tell us that story about the time you strapped it all back up again in practice? Well, you know, uh, I think it happened twice. Uh, the one time that comes to mind, we were playing Denver and Mike Shanahan. And I really wanted to beat Mike because I have a lot of regard for him um, and his son now too, Kyle. And um, I put on the pads and came out. At that point, I was still in decent enough shape that there might have been a few guys on the team, a few, probably the kicker and the punter, that I could have still whipped the crap out of. So, you know, I didn't have any problem putting a uniform on. Uh, it created some energy. We had fun with it. It was the game, if you guys recall, that before halftime, Randy flipped the ball over his shoulder to Mo Williams, which was yeah. another great, yep. great, great moment. 
we ended up winning that game. We ended up beating Mike Shanahan and his team. And uh, it, it was a fun week, really fun week. Yeah, I remember that play like it was yesterday. My um, mom was jumping up and down screaming, show me Mo, show me Mo. <laughs> yeah, right. Mo, Mo Williams uh, made a lot of plays for us, too. He scored a lot of touchdowns for us. Yeah, and Mo was a really nice guy. I met Mo a lot. Mo's a, Mo's a great guy. We had him into the Raiders camp a couple of years ago as an offensive assistant. He was thinking he wanted to get deeper into coaching. Uh, it turned out I don't think that's what he wants to do. Get back into that grind. That grind's crazy. Hours alone. The hours alone. Is John still coaching too? No, John is not coaching. John's retired in Florida. My brother John we're talking about. Yep. Last time I talked to him, he was recruiting me, trying to get me to go to Pace, trying to get me to Pace. transfer. <laughs> yeah, the commish. That was yep, a long time yep. ago. Yep. So. Well, getting into some of the times when you started, when you left the Vikes and you went to the Jags to go play with Del Rio, and then the Bears and the Falcons, and then back with Del Rio with the Raiders, you were around some of the, the craziest players ever, Randy Moss, Julio Jones. Is it weird seeing – the players, Steve Largent, you know, seeing all these guys, is Randy still the greatest you've seen? Well, um, you know, I'll, I'll give you a one Randy Moss story, and then maybe we can wrap this thing up. Yes. Um, Randy, to answer your question, yes. And then I'm going to give you this story. We had training camp, and uh, I was working the guys pretty good, and we were we were hitting a lot. And so I had devised this plan with the grounds crew that I was going to do stretching and I was going to have them doing stretching, act like they made a mistake with the timer because I knew I was going to cancel practice and we were going to go in the pool. So I devised this plan that we were going to put the sprinklers on, but I wanted to make sure I knew exactly where Randy stood during stretching. I wanted to make sure he got wet. So the sprinklers came on, everything worked as planned. Randy got wet, everyone was hooting and hollering, cancel practice. I had already decided I was cancel practice. We canceled practice, told everyone they had to be in the pool within X amount of minutes. Everybody went into the pool of Mankato State and they all started a diving board contest. Well, here's Randy Moss on the diving board doing all these flips and all these other things. And I said to him, at the end, I said, my God, is there anything you can't do? And he looked me in the eye dead serious and said, play the piano. <laughs> and then he went, yet. Yeah. You know, like, <laughs> maybe one day. So, yeah, Randy Moss, to answer your question, is uh, the greatest athlete that I've been around in uh, my 35 years in the National Football League. There are a lot of other great ones out there but none that uh, could take over a game like, like he could and he did. My last question, and then I'm going to ask you, is how do you know when to do those moments, when to push the guys and when not to push them, to give them those days off, things like that? From being a player yourself, how could, how could you know? You just answered the question. That's it? Being a, pl being a player. It's like you've been in those shoes. You were in those shoes for 14 years. You know how they're feeling. You know when they're enthused. You know when they're sore. 
you know when they need a break, and you also have the great communication between you and your medical department because the training staff, I don't know about other sports, but in football, the training staff is like going to your barber, right? Or going to your favorite bar and sitting at the bar, you know, they hear everything. Mm -hmm. So the training staff in the National Football League hears everything. They know. So if you have a good relationship, a good rapport with your training staff and you pay attention, you should always have your thumb on the pulse of your football team. That's good to know. I appreciate yeah. the insight, Coach. Well, and I got, I got one, one more question for you, Coach, and obviously we don't have to dive into it all if you don't feel comfortable, but you were the coach on the – you were coaching with the Vikings during the infamous Love Boat scandal. Was Did you ever think getting into coaching that you'd ever be having to deal with a situation like that? And what was that process like of trying to navigate kind of that scandal that kind of rocked Minnesota and took center stage? Yeah, it was it was unfortunate. Uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, we were already coming off uh, a devastating injury to Dante Culpepper. Yeah, we we were we were reeling already from that. We had a bye. I gave the boys off a number of days as opposed to going home and. Uh, you know, doing their thing with their families and their mom and their dad and their sisters and whoever, their buddies, they decided uh, to a group of them to stay, charter these boats and uh, play cards and, you know, drink and do whatever they were doing. Uh, it totally came out, I think, nothing illegal, I think. I didn't see anyone get arrested. Um, yeah. But it turned out that, you know, the inference was that I paid for the, boat out of the fine money uh it was just i had no uh, knowledge of it um certainly if i did we'd have, we'd have shut that sucker down pretty quickly right uh, it kind of ruined everything we had going on uh you know made things uh made things hard you had new ownership uh the wills uh who have done a tremendous job with the vikings new stadium absolutely phenomenal i've been to the new stadium but i've been to the new practice facility was able to uh spend some time there with coach zimmer and the staff um absolutely phenomenal practice facility uh the Z the wills are spending money um so i understand that they wanted to make a change and bring their own guy in it's just i felt it was heartbreaking because i just felt that defensively we were starting to get where we needed to be because we were bringing in some really good players and uh you know just it just didn't work out you laid a great blueprint for sure i i, I get mad personally i wasn't uh, the biggest fan of childress personally and i i've talked with a lot of players i still remain friends with a few players from the from drafts from drafts that you had that i met from your camp and i've talked to them about that situation a lot and they say they think it was a big money grab a lot on the boat side that they thought, oh, here's a scandal. We could capitalize. And they got mad, and the media ran away with it when they realized there was no money going to get kicked back to them. So I, I feel bad. That sucks because I think that definitely messed up your opportunity for a lot of other high coaching opportunities just because of that, and you weren't even a part of it. Well, it turned out, you know, I was able to, uh, you know, get back in the league and, and uh, you know, coach the offensive line. Fortunately, you know, my dear friend Jack Del Rio, uh, came to the rescue and hired me in Jacksonville. Um, 
and um, you know it is what it is you live life it's not a it's not a couple of weeks that uh, i want to remember because it really uh, when i got that call late at night from our head of our security and was told uh, are you sitting down uh, i really knew something bad happened and i was at first praying that nobody died uh, but you know, it is what it is and, uh, we all move on. I don't want to say I learned anything from it because quite frankly, I didn't do anything yeah. except maybe I should have told them all they had to get the hell out of town. <laughs> uh, right. but, uh, that's, it is what it is. So I appreciate you guys having me on. I'd love to do it again. Yeah. yeah. I'd love to, whenever you want to, I'd, I'd love to get you on right before the draft and talk about some draft picks and stuff like that. Well, I, I, I'll be honest with you, Kamish. I'm busy right now putting together <laughs> my own draft show, so I'm going to get through that. Uh, I'm going to push the show out Friday. You can check it out on Odds and Ends. Love to. Uh, pod and, and Odds and Ends with Mike Tice on YouTube. Yes, sir. <laughs> All right, guys. Appreciate All right. you. All right. Thank you, Coach. You got it, Kamish. Thank you, Coach. All right, man. All right, guys.